Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, here we go. Let's do it. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, y'all, I'm David Summers, and this is the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now we step back into the ring and back into time. We get hooked up with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, stud? Oh, geez, man, just, uh, just hanging out, hanging out in paradise, man. <laughs> you know, uh, right in the middle of God's country. Really, really beautiful. Weather's great. Uh, it's just, uh, I don't know how it gets any better in this day. You know, I think it also is the time of year, and it is the time of year that football is out there. We're about three games in. No matter who you're pulling for, you can feel it and that helps you feel good too, don't it, Stud? Oh yeah, it sure does, man. <laughs> Especially if you got a team that's winning. Oh yeah, you know? there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you know, and uh, coming this week, uh, end up here, uh, we got Tennessee and Florida, man. So it don't get much better than that. Uh, really looking forward to that one. You can. My brother's a big, big Gator fan. Yeah, and, uh, and I'm a pretty big ball <laughs> fan, and so you know. We look for that. We have enough problems as it is, man. But when it comes that day, the Vols and the Gators, geez. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, you'll be able to, you might be able to feel the ground pound from there. So you might feel a little rumble if you're hanging out at home watching that one. All right, Stud, I tell you what, every week now with two territories, Studcasts have become unique wrestling history. That's for real. I can hardly wait to see what the title for the next one is called every week. Last week's episode, number 267, was called Knoxville Stars Head to Gulf Coast. The Mongolian Stomper, your brother Robert, gorgeous George Jr., made their first appearance in southeastern Gulf Coast. Don Carson had arrived a week earlier. Now, this episode is called Gulf Coast Gets Knoxville Match. There had been four new wrestlers sent into Southeastern Gulf Coast in the last couple of weeks. So how and why was Southeastern Gulf Coast going to be getting a Knoxville match? Explain that one. (laughs) Well, that's a great question, Dave. (laughs) And uh, right to begin the show with, uh, let's get on it, man. Let's jump right into it. Well, you know, the Gulf Coast fans, you know, they had gotten uh, four great wrestlers in the last two weeks. But because they weren't aware down there in that part of the company, country, uh, what company uh, that we had two territories and uh, fans down there had no idea where these wrestlers were coming from. 
So uh, bear in mind, Charlie Platt's TV set background still said Gulf Coast on it. So, you know, they didn't know what Southeastern was all about. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they were, I'm sure they were wondering, geez, where did all these big stars come from all of a sudden? Mm -hmm. So Southeastern Gulf Coast had only been in business for just over six months at this point. And eventually it's going to become Southeastern Wrestling, just like the one in Knoxville. And I kind of thought at this point it was time for the Gulf Coast fans to see the name Southeastern and maybe even see some Southeastern champions. So Southeastern Knoxville was, for the first time ever, not going to have a live event that week because it was the second week in a row that they didn't have any TV show in that market. And we decided to cancel our date in the Coliseum without the TV for two weeks. We didn't think we could uh, do well at all. So during this uh, two-week period, uh, in episode 266, Southeastern Knoxville had that spectacular two nights in a row, mink coat and world championship tournament. And we focused the entire stud cast on Knoxville a couple mm -hmm. of weeks ago. Yep. So this stud cast, since Knoxville wasn't having a live event at all, we're going to kind of focus on Southeastern Gulf Coast and the city of Dothan in particular, because it was the only major city in both the territories that was having Friday night matches. So I felt like it was the perfect opportunity back in the day. This was 44 years ago, this decision we we're talking about, to introduce the Gulf Coast fans to the company name that sometime in the future is going to be their name. Right. So because the city of Knoxville was dark, meaning <clears throat> basically it didn't have any matches, we would be running a smaller city up in that Knoxville area with a smaller card. So uh, why not take advantage of it and send someone else from the southeastern Knoxville Territory south? Uh, so I decided, well, let's just send this tag champions and their opponents uh, down there. And uh, so I sent them down to Dothan, Alabama to add them to the card. <laughs> so, you know, and, and we had set new record crowds in both Mobile and Montgomery the week before. And Harley Race was coming to defend the NWA world title in those two cities the following week. So why not load up Dothan, man, and uh, can see if we can continue setting new records down there in the southeastern Gulf Coast. Right. So, I mean, it makes sense to me, Stud. So you were establishing the southeastern name and also using that additional tag match to shoot for another record crowd. That's a pretty cool idea. So before we get into this episode I know you're aware of the recent passing of one of the many stars of Southeastern and Continental Wrestling, Bill Ash. I thought you might want to take a moment and say a few words about him. Well, man, thanks. I'm glad you brought him up, man, and uh, and I definitely do. I, I want to, and I, I'm I'm going to try to recognize pe people that uh, were Southeastern wrestlers uh, uh, when they pass, uh, uh, because it's happening too often now. We're losing a lot of great ones. And uh, it just seems like uh, every week, you know, far too fast anyway. So I'd love to pay tribute to the He was one of the best United States junior heavyweight champions of all time. And for those around the world that don't know much about him, you can Google or YouTube and see for yourself what a great wrestler this guy Bill Ash was. And he probably held our U.S. Junior Heavyweight Championship belt. Uh, Southeastern had its own United States Junior Heavyweight Champion. And, uh, his, and he held that belt as long as anyone. And we were blessed to have some of the best Junior Heavyweight Champions in the history of Southeastern Continental and USA Wrestling. Some great wrestlers. Wrestlers like Tony Charles. Les Thornton, Nelson Royal, 
Brad Armstrong, uh, Stan Lane, Jerry Stubbs, Tommy Rogers, Norvell Austin, Scott McGee, Rip Rogers, Roy Lee Welch, Scott Armstrong. I mean, I could just go on and on. And, uh, and I'm sure I've left out a whole lot of them here. But uh, these are guys that are really great athletes and uh, really great wrestlers. So I guess the point is we were loaded with talent in that junior heavyweight division. And that was a great thing for Southeastern. Many cards were open with the first match uh, by those junior heavyweight matches. And that set the tone for the evening. Ma imagine matches like uh, Brad Armstrong against Stan Lane is an opening match. I mean, wow. Mm -hmm. uh, so the other wrestlers on the card, which was really great, man, it, it put the pressure on them right there. If they went out and watched that match, they realized – wow, I got to go, man, <laughs> to beat that, you know. And uh, so what it did is when those two young guys got in there and they went out there and tore that house up in the first match, the guys that were following had to really, really push themselves to give the fans all they could. And uh, that made the whole night's event, event after event, hmm. better and better. Same time, Bill Ash and his father – uh, they had something else going on besides Bill being a great wrestler. Uh, they were both uh, famous for, for, for this. They were famous for making, I think, some of the best wrestling boots in the business. Hmm. And, uh, and Bill, obviously, he was also really best at making his challengers look good and teaching young guys, up-and-coming stars, how to get over uh, did that with two Armstrongs in particular, Brad, then Scott later when Scott came along. Wow. And uh, he was also one of those very important, unique wrestlers that kept dressing rooms upbeat hmm. and uh, always had a big smile on his face. So, uh, you know, my thoughts and prayers go out to his family. Uh, he was a great guy. He was a asset to wrestling. And uh, one of the, one of the unsung stars in the sport and, uh, and uh, really, uh, uh, I wish the best to him and his family out there and uh, God rest his soul. Wow. You know, I've heard you talk about the bootmaker, but I didn't know he was also a wrestler and his father was his, his father was also a wrestler. No, his father wasn't a wrestler. Just but, a bootmaker. Uh, Bill was. Bill okay. was. And, uh, yeah. and Bill, uh, yeah. in fact, uh, I got my first pair of boots, uh, really, really beautiful boots made in Australia out of kangaroo. And I brought mm -hmm. them back to America and I ran into a uh, bill about five years later, the boots were still like brand new. And he saw my design and he went, damn, Ron, he goes, where did you get those made? And that said in Australia. And he says, can you, can I take a picture of them? And I said, sure you can. Well, what for it? I didn't know he made boots. And he said, well, me and my dad, we make boots. And he says, uh, I want to do this. He says, I, do you mind if I copy it? And I said, no, <laughs> man, I don't care, Bill. You know, yeah. It, it, yeah. that'd be, it'd be an honor, you know. So, uh, so you know, that's, that's kind of how those boots came out. For them, man, they jumped on those boots from Australia. Of course, they didn't make them out of kangaroo. They had them yeah. leather. Yeah. But, uh <laughs> wow, the, they were great at it. Uh, their boots were just the best. You get a pair of hash boots, you had you had great wrestling shoes. Wow, and yeah, that that name is kind of synonymous with uh, wrestling boots. I understand amongst wrestlers all over the world. Uh, and listen, I always admired his his work in the ring. All right, so I know you got a lot planned for today. Where do we ride to first? How do we start this thing? 
Well, we're introducing Southeastern men to the Gulf Coast. Like I said, we're sending a match down there from Knoxville. And we'll be taking, you know, we'll be talking about a tremendous card in Dothan, Alabama on Friday night, September 15th, 1978. 44 years ago, about 44 years ago, exactly. And it was one week before Harley Wakes was coming to work uh, for a record of four matches he's going to have in uh, Southeastern, uh, two of them in the Northern Territory and two of them in the Southern Territory. So we're going to cover the TV that promote the card and results of the matches and the attendance. We're going to basically focus on that Dothan show because uh, nothing much was going on in the Knoxville area that week. And then we're going to take the deepest dive so far into what was happening in both Southeastern territories. And now the plan for the future of the two territory operation that we had at this point uh, was encountering some of its first problems and where that was going to lead to in the end. So uh, we're going to discuss, we're going to, get, I think, have time in this one to get further into that 1979 war. And at the end of this one, uh, we're going to preview the next studcast. Harley Race returns to Southeastern Knoxville's first ever matches in Southeastern Gulf Coast during the week. That, that again, and it, what's going to break all-time Southeastern records this week <laughs> in September, <laughs> which is very strange. That's a bad month, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we're going to break records in it uh, per, almost a whole month, especially down there in the South. <laughs> and give it enough time, maybe we'll have enough time to do another uh, learning tree, man. All right, I'm going to push you along for that. So, hey, and listen, I'm going to tell you the truth. I get excited when I know the champion's coming to town. So I know it's going to be an extra exciting stud cast, and I it's like the champion's coming to town. So you can kind of feel it when you get into those stories about about the, the legendary Harley race. And so I know that's coming up. All right. Hey, I know this is going to be fun, definitely. So, so much was happening during this time, all of which was pure wrestling history with one of the greatest NWA world champions of all time arriving the next week. So what was on the card? You're talking Dothan, Alabama, Friday night, September 15th, 1978. Okay, well, hang on. You're going you're gonna to love this one, man. So Dothan <laughs> wasn't going to have an NWA world title match like mm -hmm. Montgomery and Mobile were. Uh, and like uh, Knoxville and uh, Hazard, Kentucky, we're going to have in the north. But its card was just as intriguing without the world champion. This, it was Mike Stallings versus Norvell Awesome in the opening match. And uh, that's kind of befitting a great card that's in store for the fans. That's a pretty good opener right there, Stallings against Awesome. Charlie Cook was going to be battling Lord Raven. Then my brother Rob was returning to the Gulf Coast for the first time in nine years. And one of his first matches ever in southeastern Gulf Coast was going to be against an old foe, Don Carson. The wrestling pro, Tarzan Baxter, was facing off against one of the most feared heels in history, man. <laughs> Not just by his opponents, but by the crowd itself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and he's going to be making his first appearance ever in Dothan, the Mongolian Stomper. Wow. Who was managed by Gorgeous George Jr. Next was a special event, the first time ever. We're sending a Southeastern Championship match uh, outside the Knoxville territory. The champions, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson, without their manager, Ron Wright, were defending against Jimmy Golden and Kevin Sullivan. And Condry and Hickerson had never been in the old Gulf Coast territory before, 
But Jimmy Golden had worked a few matches there in that Dothan area in 1969 and 70. And Kevin Sullivan was also there for just a short spell in 1976, wrestling under the name of Johnny West. So Sensation, mm -hmm. Tony Charles was on this card again against the wrestler that had acquired the nickname Dr. D, David Schultz. <laughs> and then the second tag match of that night featured teams well-known by Southeastern Gulf Coast fans. The champion assassins, managed by Billy Spears, were in a Texas Tornado tag match against Ricky and Robert Gibson. That meant that it's a match with which all four men are in the ring at the same time. And if the Gibsons, Gibsons won this one, they were going to get another shot at the belts. So the main event was a classic Gulf Coast title match between Mr. Goody Two Shoes, Bob Armstrong, <laughs> and myself. <laughs> I'm telling you, you were not kidding about that card. A Gulf Coast, see if I got this, a Gulf Coast title match, Texas Tornado tag match, First time ever Southeastern Tag Championship match. Mongolian Stompers, first time ever there. And your brother Robert versus Don Carson. And for the first time ever in Southeastern Gulf Coast history, if I counted right, an eight-match eight card. What was Correct. on the TV show? Six days earlier to set up this huge event because you had to have a big show to promote that. Yeah. I mean, if we just put half those people on the television show, we'd have a great television show right yeah. there. So, yeah. So let's start out, Dave, with a, with a little reminder of who was not on that TV show, though. Uh, and as I said in the last studcast, it was Gordon Soley's last Southeastern TV show, last the last uh, studcast. And he was off to Atlanta and WTBS, Ted Turner's satellite station. And he was going to be seen all over the world. And that being said, there was a heck of a lot of new big name talent in southeastern Gulf Coast as well at the same time. Four new faces in particular, one of which was going to be seen when the TV show opened on this one. And uh, Charlie Platt was at the set with my brother. And they watched a short clip of my personality profile from the week before where Robert surprised me, kind of showed up in the middle of my profile out of nowhere, didn't even know he was in town and interrupted my personality profile, my profile. Uh, we had a little verbal altercation with me, and then we ended up, uh, you know, uh, he ended up then all buddy-buddy with Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, his former tag champion uh, <laughs> partner, uh, at the end of the show. Hmm. So I think the fans in the studio and maybe those at home got into it even more, watching it back, this little deal of where he came in and interrupted me, than they did the week before when they saw it the first time. Uh, especially the ones in the studio seemed to be really into it. So he was already getting over Rob at this point. Uh, he had not been there. People had never seen it. Hard to believe that people down in that area had, had seen him for one stretch. He went through there nine years earlier. And like I said, I think it was talked about it last week. Uh, he had a TV match with Eddie Sullivan, who was the top heel and he broke Eddie Sullivan's leg accidentally. So, you know, they didn't remember Rob. They'd never seen him. Uh, it was his first appearance, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then Don Carson was scheduled in the first match of the show. So Charlie Platt asked the director, Wayne Register, to play a video that Rob had brought with him from Knoxville and uh, of how Don Carson had become a ball man. So, and the match was from about six, six weeks earlier, and it was that hair versus hair match between Robert and Don Carson in Knoxville. Mm -hmm. And it showed the end of the match, and then some of Carson having his head shaved in the ring. 
And the studio audience, wow, they were just, they, they had never seen anything like this. And they were going crazy watching Don Carson get his head shaved. And so then Carson exploded from the dressing room. And he charged across the, to the set, man, screaming for Charlie Platt, stop that video, stop that video. <laughs> and uh, that just made the studio crowd laugh harder, you know. They were really laughing by then. And uh, then Rob had to stand up, man. He had to step back because Carson took a swing at him, man. Carson was going to nail him right off the bat. <laughs> and uh, Charlie jumped up, and he stood between the two of them. And uh, Rob was laughing <laughs> like the, all the big studio. And Carson was, oh, he imagined how, how he was feeling. And uh, so Rob was laughing, and he just walked off the set. Carson still screaming at Charlie, man, standing in front of the set. And the bell rung for the first match. Well, Carson had the match. He was prepared for the match. And uh, and he looked around, and uh, his opponent was in the ring. And, oh, he was already charged. And he just smoked it into the ring. And I don't think I'd ever seen Carson that angry. And he just absolutely demolished this young, young wrestler that I don't remember the wrestler's name. Uh, wasn't on the format. And while the referee was checking the wrestler to see if he could continue, Carson had an opportunity to load his black peanut butter glove, man, and he, he just waited on the kid to get up. And when the kid finally got to his feet, Carson knocked him in the next week, man. I mean, wow. He hit him with that black glove, and the, the youngster, he didn't get up anymore. In fact, he had to be carried from the ring after that was over. So then Carson went to the set with Charlie, and he did the first interview from there with Robert in another studio. They're going to be wrestling against each other the following Friday night. And uh, Rob didn't get to say very much because Carson got started and he wouldn't stop once he got started. And he was really accusing Rob following him to the Gulf Coast from up north and that he was going to make Robert Fuller sorry for it, man, that you followed me down here. You humiliated <laughs> me up there. Now you follow uh -huh. me down here and you're going to pay for it, Robert Fuller. <laughs> In the studio crowd, they never stopped laughing. They never stopped laughing hardly since the first thing that happened. They were really enjoying the way the show had opened up. Well, yeah, I guess they were enjoying that a little bit, just a little bit. A bald Don Carson, embarrassed and fuming, screaming for revenge. I mean, that, that has to be the fans' delight right there. That is too funny. All right, so what came next? Well, sheer panda pardon me, because uh, every time I think about this next one, I, it just uh, <laughs> it, it makes me want to want to laugh in a way uh, from fear. Sheer pandemonium was next. That's what it was, man. The, the bell rang for the second match, and uh, and a wrestler from the babyface dressing room went to the ring, which was like normal, and uh, usually the they would come before the star that was going to be wrestling against him. And everyone that had watched the TV show from the week before, uh, they probably couldn't have forget the video that Gorgeous George Jr. showed of, of his massive monster, the Mongolian Stomper. It was about five minutes long, and Stomper killed everybody, stomping people, and it showed him break the block on his head, the whole deal. So the Stomper had, uh, had, had kind of already appeared for the first time. And he had appeared already in some of the Gulf Coast cities at this point, but not in, in the Dothan yet. And uh, so 
he was the, he had just been in all those cities, just positively terrifying crowds. He was just wow, and all of them. So so now he's in a tiny little studio. You know how the studio was set up? Two sets of bleachers there. Yeah. Uh, the bleachers were full of fans. Yeah. And there's no place for them to run, you know. And boy, the dressing room door <laughs> exploded open for the second time in the show. And out come the Mongolian stomper, man. He, and he charged. He didn't go to the ring. He charged the bleachers. And uh, and with Gorgeous George was hanging on him, trying to control him as best he could. And that studio full of fans panicked, man. Uh, they were jumping from the top of the bleachers, and they were running out the exits of the studio. And some of them were hiding under the bleachers. <laughs> and uh, you talk about getting over, man. So I was just hoping and praying nobody got hurt. <laughs> wow, this is, this might be bad. And then the stomper charged to charge the ring. And then, and as our ring announcer, you know, Al Roberts was the ring announcer that day. Back in that time, he's a sports director for WTVY, the station that produced the show. Yeah. And Al was then there, and he never seen the stomper either. And stomper charged in the ring, and Al ran. <laughs> <laughs> he did the same thing that the Knoxville TV announcer Phil Rainey used to do when the stomper charged the ring. <laughs> he disappeared. He, he couldn't find out. He, he didn't didn't finish the introduction. He just was gone. Okay, so I'm telling you, that is really making a first impression. So what happened in the match, Stud? Well, it didn't last two minutes, man. You know, it was a typical stomper match and maybe even more vicious than normal. He pounded his opponent, and then he slammed his face into the turnbuckles four or five times. Then he threw him in the ropes, and he kicked him in the midsection. And then he stomped him right in the face about three times before he finally pinned his lifeless body. I was just laying there, and he finally just, you know, covered him. And uh, most of the crowd that it hastily retreated when he arrived, you know, that ran from the studio. Uh, they, they didn't, uh, <laughs> they didn't reenter the studio until he was gone back to the dressing room. <laughs> they, they were standing out there, the exit signs where the exit signs were, it was full of fans that were afraid to come back in and sit down on the bleachers anymore. So then the second body of the day was removed from the ring. And then, then when the commercial break was over, the Stomper and Gigi came to the set for the second interview. Now, some of the fans that had bolted out earlier were so scared uh, that they got up and they left again. They had <laughs> come back in when the commercial break was on. Yeah. And as soon as Stomper came out of the dressing room again, they left again. They went to the exits, man. So, uh, so they were scared, man. And, they, so, uh, you know, once they got out and left, this time the Stomper brought with him his huge thick truck shop and to, to sit to brought it to the set with him mm-hmm. and he, he looked right straight into the cameras as soon as he got there as soon as he got there and he began to bend that thing into a u-shape yeah. like it was a right. little toy right yeah. yeah and Gigi sat down in front of him and uh Gigi was all smiles and he was predicting that the local wrestler that's going to be wrestling against him the guy named the wrestling pro who mm-hmm. was big time there right yeah the absolutely yeah uh, he said uh, you know even though this guy's a local guy and he's supposed to be good, he goes, uh, uh, he's scheduled against a monster here. And he goes, I don't think he's going to last any longer than that punk up there in the ring a few minutes ago that carried out. Wow. All right. That was a pretty scary start to the TV show, or at least for the Dothan audience. So two matches and two men carried from the ring. How do you follow that, Stud? 
Well, what we did, uh, what we did actually is we followed it with a double personality profile, not one, but two double, a double one. Uh, so Charlie had prepared for one profile, uh, but I came to the set and I demanded another personality profile after being interrupted in last week's studcast, you know, and, and that one last week by my goody two shoes brother, you know, said, so Charlie, you owe me another personality profile. I didn't get to say all the things I wanted to say. So uh, Charlie was expecting one subject, but yeah, he was obviously forced into doing a second one as well. So Charlie's profile, the one he was going to do first, was about the Southeastern Territory in Knoxville, Tennessee. And it was about him sending down a Southeastern Championship tag match to the Gulf Coast and that they had selected and sent a three-minute video of a recent match in which their tag champions, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson's manager, Ron Wright, had clearly interfered in the match and caused the other team, Jimmy Golden and Kevin Sullivan, to lose. So Charlie's going to run a video here with me sitting there. <laughs> I'm waiting on my turn. So Charlie shows the end of this match, and then he explains that the Southeastern promoters, as a punishment to Ron Wright, and a favor to doing a favor for the Gulf Coast, sending down a great tag match, we're sending four wrestlers, and they're going to have a return tag team championship match 600 miles south of Ron Wright's home <laughs> to ensure no interference from him. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, now were you? Were you added? Yeah. Were you added again, Stud? I mean, was this another interactive type idea that you came up with? I mean, had anything like this been done before? <laughs> Not to my knowledge, Dave. <laughs> you know, I don't know any any territories that sent sent one of their tag team matches to another territory. Uh, and I guess if you got two territories and they're your own, <laughs> you can do pretty much whatever you wanted to do. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. This, this, and I, I kind of had fun with it. It was good. I thought, wow, let's, let's try this. So they also sent a two minute interview, uh, you know, and had comments from both of the teams about the match itself and, uh, and the fact that they were going to have to travel 1200 miles back and forth and be back in Tennessee in 24 hours. So, so wow. you know, it was, it wasn't easy for them guys to do this. Wow. That, that's a crazy idea, but I think that's a cool idea. Fans were going to get to see what wrestling was like in a whole nother territory. So I guess when this was over profile part two began when Charlie maybe dealt with you and your demands. Well, that's, that's it. He had to. And, you know, so because of what happened a week before on the profile, when my brother had interrupted my profile, uh, then, then, then me, I had to sit there and listen to him rant and rave about how I was dealing with my life, <laughs> telling me all things I was doing wrong. And then, and then I had to endure looking at Charlie Platt and Gordon Soley laughing at me about it, you know? And uh, so, I explained that I made the, the demand because I had the perfect video. There's a reason, Charlie, for this. I got the perfect video because the NWA champ is coming to the territory here, and uh, it's going to show me winning the NWA world title against champion Jack Briscoe, 1975. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My hand raised and the belt being taken back from me afterwards. Wow. Wow. All right, so you've got the actual video of that match in which you won the NWA World Championship from Jack Briscoe. Okay, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I think I've seen that. 
It's on your website, tnstud.com, under videos. It certainly is. Okay. And, uh, uh, and, and, yeah. and in the six months, the Southeastern's existed. Uh, six months in the Southeastern, once the start of the territory in April of 1975, first world champion that ever came through there in the Knoxville Coliseum, uh, I wrestled him. Uh, and, uh, and I was the actual world champion for a couple of minutes. There was no doubt about it. And uh, so this was kind of the perfect occasion to show it because the NWA champion was on his way in. And uh, me and Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, Bob Armstrong, uh, you know, we were meeting for a showdown on this card for the Gulf Coast Championship. So, you know, uh, it, it seemed like a fit. Okay, I tell you, I highly recommend those that have not seen this to have a look at it under videos on your website, tnstud.com. For those who have not, tell us about it, Stud. started, man, and I explained it by pointing out first that fans didn't like me much, kind of like the rednecks sitting over there on the bleachers right now, I told them. And, uh, and there was this uh, goody two-shoes wrestler like Bob Armstrong in that territory back in that time frame. I'm trying to explain the history of what's about to happen here, that there was a Goody Two Shoes guy back in that territory back in that time, and his name was Ron Wright. And uh, that we'd been in a long feud for months, and he was jealous of my skills and the fact that I was selected to wrestle the NWA World Champion Jack Briscoe the first time a World Champion uh, came came there. And uh, so I kept describing the action. And after a very long and grueling match for Briscoe. I said, you know, the stupid referee got in the way, and, I, and we were watching what happened, and uh, and he, he went down after colliding with the champion. I said, look at him. You know, he didn't get out of the way, and him and the champion collided, and he goes, and, then, you know, I'm trying to hide what I really did. And I say, you know, and look, something flew out of Jack Briscoe's tights. And, and, you know, and, and I know he intended to use that on me, and it landed on the mat, and, uh, and I said, and look, I picked it up, and then I knocked Briscoe out with it, and I stuck it under my left arm, and and I covered him as the, as the video was showing, and the referee counted the world champion out. One, two, three. Now, the belt had just changed hands, and obviously, uh, you know, there was a lot of confusion in the ring, and uh, I just won the world title, <laughs> and the ref was still a little bit foggy from being crashed into uh, with by, by Briscoe, and uh, he raised my right hand, he rang the bell, he got the 10 pounds of gold belt, and he handed it to me. And I took, my, I took the belt with my right hand because uh, I, I knew what was still under my left arm. <laughs> and uh, the Jack Briscoe and they had planned on using it on me to win. So, you know, I just uh, I, I left that thing under my arm. And I, and I paraded around the ring. I remember it. Wow. Wow, what a great moment it was. And the bell was still ringing. Uh, bang, bang, the bell's still going, man. And I'm celebrating the belt. I got it in my right hand. And Briscoe's still down. He didn't get up. He didn't get up for about five minutes, in fact. And uh, and here came the idiot, Ron Wright, came to the ring. And uh, so did Jerry Briscoe, who was also on that card, uh, Jack's brother. And Jerry went straight to his brother, Jack. And the referee tried to stop Ron Wright, but Ron Wright pushed by him, and he came right to me. Now, I had my right hand holding the belt up in the air and my left hand uh, clamped down arm on, on that, on that uh, object that I'd used mm -hmm. to win the match. And uh, Ron Wright jerked my left arm, and it 
up in the air, and then there it fell right out in front of the referee. He's standing there looking at it, mm -hmm. and he goes, oh, no. He turns and starts ringing the bell again. Uh, this idiot, Ron Wright, it cost me the world championship. Wow. And, wow. you know, so referee's there. What, did, what was I going to do, you know? And uh, he, he thought it was mine. You know, and that's why I'm explaining this to the fans. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong here. Jack Briscoe brought this in the ring, and it, it cost him the, the world title. Yeah. And then, uh, so I grabbed the object, uh, and I knocked Ron right out with it. He's standing right there. He had it coming, and Jerry Briscoe started after me, and um, and I left the ring, and I left the ring with the belt. Wow. That, that didn't happen in in um, in the National Wrestling Alliance. I actually went to the dressing room with the NWA 10 pounds ago. Uh, so Charlie asked, <laughs> questioned me about why I was, you know, if I had won the world title, like I'm saying, why come, why am I never been recorded as an NWA world champion? You know, and then the fans in the studio booed me as, it's, as if they'd actually been there, seen the match. <laughs> they were actually booing before the match was over. Mm -hmm. But I didn't care. You know, I was the Gulf Coast champion. I came out there with my belt. Yep. And, uh, and then, you know, so I just uh, uh, I took my belt. I stood up again like I had done the week before, held it over my head. And, uh, you know, I told the studio fans and those at home that I was, I, I'm your champion and I'm always going to be your champion. Bless your heart, Ron. Bless your heart. I bet the fans love that. <laughs> <laughs> I got to admit, that was very, that was a really cool story. I'm sure not many wrestlers have videos of themselves leaving the ring with the NWA 10 pounds of gold. So what happened next in the TV show? Well, my brother had opened the show and he got a great ovation on his second TV appearance. It's the second time he'd been there. Uh, and this time uh, he's going to the ring again. Uh, for the third live match. And uh, he went up and did pretty much the same thing he had done the week before. He had a, one of basically a clean wrestling match, clean breaks, uh, you know. Uh, he got himself a win. He used the fuller leg lock to do it. And uh, and when he won the studio, he, he, was, the, he was the next goody two-shoes, man. And the whole crowd standing on their feet, they're loving him. And, uh, and then he made the rounds. He had to take it to another level. He shook all the fans on the front row and everybody in the bleachers. And uh, while all that's going on, for the next interview, Mr. Goody Two Shoes himself, Bob Armstrong, came out to make the interview with me. I went into a separate studio. Mm -hmm. And then uh, uh, and then when Rob finished shaking all the hands, and uh, he went straight went to Bob Armstrong, put his arm around him. Here they went with the buddy-buddy again, right? And uh, so Armstrong loved the fact that him and my brother were such good friends. And uh, they took most of the interview time. I didn't get to say too much. Uh, and Bob was thanking Rob for showing up down here and making my life miserable. That's the way Bob Armstrong said, hey, Rob, man, I'm so happy you're here because your brother's miserable now. So they had a big laugh, and then Robert wished him luck in the upcoming championship match with me for the Gulf, the Gulf Coast title. Mm -hmm. And in my interview, I told him, win or lose, that there's only one true champion here, and he's never going to get his hands on this belt again. <laughs> All right, so how did this show end? 
Well, it ended, man, with a real treat for the fans. This has already been a pretty good show, and uh, on the end of it, the assassins were forced to wrestle the Gibson brothers on TV in a very rare Texas tornado match, exactly like what they're going to have to wrestle them in on the following Friday night. They're going to have to do it on TV. It was the last match, and uh, wow, it was a highlight. It was the highlight of a great show, man. I mean, that with those four guys in the ring and those fans all cranked up, and the time ran out on it, and they started ringing the bell, and they couldn't get the match stopped. The second referee had to come out. <laughs> I mean, the show was just pure mayhem on the end. Uh, both clean teams uh, had just enough time to get interviews in before they shut it down. Wow. All right, listen, I'll tell you what, that's a great TV show and a great first half of this show. It seems like a good spot for a break. Let's do that. Let's take a break, and we'll be back with the results of this spectacular eight-match card right after this break. Stay with us. This Studcast will continue in a moment right here. All right, Studcast fans, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com is only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year. It's the hottest old school wrestling site on the planet. It's exploding with content. It now has 322 videos, 74 original Southeastern TV shows, 23 original Continental TV shows, 23 original USA TV shows, 41 stud stories, 5 stars of the sport, 4 superstars of the past, 3 two-hour documentaries, Hundreds of other classic Gulf Coast and other territory matches. Plus Ron's thrilling, best-selling book, Brutus. The only place you can find the audio version. With four characters being done by Ron himself. Take the free one-week trial run and you'll be hooked. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com Subscribe now. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back in. It is episode number 268. It's called Gulf Coast gets Knoxville match. All right, so let's go back and talk about the results of this card in Dothan, Alabama, Friday, September 15th of 1978. Okay, so Norvell Austin uh, won the match against Mike Stallings in the opener. It was a great match, uh, as I expected it would be. Uh, Charlie Cook got the best of a young kid named Lord Raven, and uh, Lord Raven uh, wasn't going to be there long. <laughs> he was. He had a short run. He was about to be gone. The Mongolian Stomper did actually uh, exactly the same thing in Dothan that he'd done in every other cities on his first appearance there. He terrorized the crowd, man. And uh, he terrorized them going to the <laughs> ring, and he terrorized them coming back. Too. Uh, and he also terrorized the wrestling pro, and, and he won big time right in the middle of the ring. Wow. So then the Southeastern Tag Championship match with the wrestlers that almost nobody knew turned out to be a huge success. And uh, and it started out slowly. I really wa I wanted to watch watch this match in particular, but just, just to see how this worked out. And uh, fans took a while to get into it, but as soon as the fans realized after about fifteen or twenty minutes that these two tag teams were top notch, man, uh, then they then they started to really get involved. And the finish was a really good one. Uh, it kind of surprised everybody in the building. And uh, just when it seemed like Golden and Sullivan were beat, 
they pulled out a victory and the crowd popped. And wow, like uh, like they had seen these guys a hundred times before. And uh, so uh, as Condry and Higgerson were leaving the ring, uh, they had lost the belts right there. And uh, Jimmy Golden and Kevin Sullivan uh, were uh, celebrating with the fans. And uh, they didn't take, they didn't, didn't leave right away. They stayed in the <laughs> ring. The fans were really into it, man. They were like, wow, they, they love this guy. They love these two guys. And, uh, and then uh, Jimmy and Kevin got so into it, they went over and got the microphone. And they actually thanked the crowd. I want to thank all y'all. What a great crowd. This is great. Y'all are wow. good. You know, it was a, there's a little love fest going on there between Jimmy <laughs> Golden and Kevin Sullivan and the, uh, and the, and the Dothan crowd. Hey, that's kind of how that's kind of how astute that audience in Dothan was. They knew good wrestling. They may not have been familiar with these two tag teams that were facing each other, but they knew they kind of after the match knew who's who in that in that match and and appreciated it. So that really sounds that match like that match was a real success. So did you follow up and do it again like the the Mink Coat tournament? Well, not right away, you know, but uh, but but I did think about it uh, quite a few times, and uh, and I think we probably did it a couple of other times. But uh, the great part about this, and and another great thing about it, is three out of those four wrestlers that were in the ring are all going to become stars in southeastern and continental down there in that part of the country. Jimmy Golden's going to do it in 1980. Dennis Condry is going to form. The one of the greatest teams that was ever, ever done, uh, the first three man team concept, uh, him and Randy Colley and I mean, Randy Rose and Norvell Austin are going to form the Midnight Express in 1980. Wow. Uh, Kevin Sullivan is going to cause sheer bedlam there, man, with his New Guinea headhunters in 1986. <laughs> when Don Nettles going. Right? Yeah. So, you know, three out of these four guys they got a big future there. And, and none of them knew it at that point. So then uh, Robert and Don Carson were in the next match, and, wow, they tore the house down, man, just, did, just like they'd been doing in southeastern Knoxville. And uh, I, this one, I intentionally came out of the dressing room. I didn't stand back in the corner like I had the rest of the night. I got right in the back of that big old farm center building where everybody in the building could see me watching my brother wrestle, right? And uh, they ended up, both of them bleeding, uh, about uh, 20, 30 minutes into the match. And then gorgeous George Jr. came down to the ring to help out Don Carson. And then both he and Carson, man, they ended up doing a job on Rob. And then, uh, and uh, you know, the referee disqualified Carson, but he couldn't get him off of him. And, uh, and then almost everybody in the building was watching me by wow. that point. Yeah. And while they were screaming for me, man, go help your brother, you ass. <laughs> you know, ah. they, they did not like what was going on at all. And uh, <laughs> and I stood there and I watched it all. It got so nasty back there. They started coming out of the stands and the police had to come back there and get around me to keep the fans off of me. Well, it didn't <laughs> help that you were six feet nine and you were looking over the crowd and, and the entire crowd could probably see you standing there. So. All right, so didn't you do anything to, to help your brother, Ron? Oh, well, heck no, I went back to the dressing room. Man, and, <laughs> oh, my God. No, and the fans <laughs> cursed me, man. They threw everything they had at me, cups and, and bottles well, and whatever, man. It was tremendous heat. 
It wasn't just hmm. a little heat. It was tremendous heat. Well, it was kind like, of – you you treated yeah, it – like, what kind of ass are you to do yeah. that to your brother, right? Yeah, but you treated it like it was just not your business, right? Yeah, yeah. You okay. know, I, yeah, it was he, – he had it coming, and, you know, and he, he shouldn't have left me alone on TV, and then, you know, and I, why should I go help him, you know? So uh, – uh, and it, it – uh, <laughs> like I said, it got tremendous heat. Uh, so the next match was Tony Charles and against David Schultz. And, uh, wow, they, these guys have been having great matches with each other, and they had another one of those. And uh, Tony, uh, you know, uh, won again. And uh, But uh, David Schultz realized that, you know, the TV championship, he had wrestled him for the TV trophy about a month earlier. He realized that, that uh, Tony Charles had not defended his belt, uh, his trophy, and, uh, and he was supposed to do it once a month. So when the match was over, Schultz got on the microphone and he said, you know, it's your month is up. You've got to defend the trophy. And, uh, and, and I want the shot. You need to defend the trophy against me. And he said, and I want to do it tomorrow on TV. You're going to be here tomorrow. I'm going to be here tomorrow. I want you, Tony Charles, if you got any guts, to defend the TV trophy against me tomorrow on TV. Well, Tony was such a nice guy, and he got that British accent, and he says, well, okay, yes, I'll do it. And the crowd popped, man. <laughs> they were like, wow, we're going to get a great match again tomorrow on television. So then the Texas Tornado Tag Match uh, – uh, that uh, between the Gibsons and the uh, Assassins was just as good, if not better, than that Southeastern tag. And uh, the Gibsons were on their way to a win. Uh, and uh, and then Billy Spears got involved, and he handed one of his men something to use on them. And suddenly, uh, out of nowhere, uh, this had been going on for weeks, in which every match uh, Spears was winning for his team. And on this one, suddenly Charlie Cook appeared at ringside. After he saw Spears hand him one of them to something, he's standing back there. And unlike me, he went to do something about it. And he started chasing Billy Spears around the ring. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Billy Spears run pretty fast when he got Charlie Cook chasing him. So uh, one of the assassins uh, got so distracted about what was going on out there on the floor that Ricky Gibson climbed up on the top rope and he waited for him to turn around. And uh, when he did, Ricky came flying off that top rope, drop kicked him in the face with both feet, and they covered him for the win. And uh, and they they got the belts. Wow. The Gibson boys took those belts, and uh, wow, it was a big moment there. Another big big match during the course of the night. So came down to the last match, and it was my Gulf Coast Championship match against Bob Armstrong, and uh, the heat that I'd created. Standing out there and watching my brother was, man, it was evident. When I came around that corner down there where the heels came out of the dressing room, that building, I never heard it so loud. They were just waiting on me, man. They were like, oh, they were so mad what, that I hadn't helped my brother. And uh, so uh, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, man, he got the best of me that night. And uh and as you know, the crowd never quieted down at all, man. So, you know, it made it harder. And, uh, and then uh, he walked away with the championship belt. And, and that's the way it should have been, actually, because Bob was uh, going to be in the ring with the NWA world champion. 
10, 10, 11 days later, 10 days later in Montgomery, 11 days later in Mobile, Alabama. And uh, it's going to be uh, Harley's uh, first Southeastern appearance in, in world title matches. All right. That's that's cool. All right. What about the attendance? That's an incredible card. You had to be doing really well. Well, we had 5,500 fans, man, uh, in the Houston County Farm Center, man, uh, in September. 1978 September. I mean, it's the worst time of the year for wrestling, and uh, and and when I look back, I went and looked at the figures, the size of the population. You know how many people lived in Dothan, Alabama, in 1978? It was less than 50,000 people, hmm. Hmm. and uh, so we had 5,500 in the building. So that meant that one out of every 10 people in Dothan was in that building. <laughs> and I realized right then when, when I looked that, that Dothan, Alabama had to be maybe the best small wrestling city in the world. It was amazing how big the crowds were and how small that, that, build, that city was. You know what? And when we were growing up, we as kids, we didn't know that. We had no idea. We just thought that was the natural thing. Because one week we might see Andre the Giant, another week we might see Ric Flair. I mean, j- you just never do it. But that, uh, listen, that's a great night for Dothan fans. That's for sure. They might not have gotten an NWA World Title match this time, but they sure got a great card. That's absolutely the truth. All right, I hope you may be ready for, to take a deeper dive into what was happening in both territories that was going to lead to the Knoxville Wrestling War. In 1979, this stuff is really fascinating. Let's. Uh, are you going to start talking about that? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, let's let's start this discussion off with what I uh, what I call the the two territory plan. When when I got to talking to Rob and Bob and Jimmy, Roy Lee about uh, the second territory, I had a plan all along, and uh, I called it the two-territory plan, that, that all of the owners of the southeastern Gulf Coast Territory had agreed that from the very beginning, gosh, it's a great idea, Ron, it, it'll, it'll, it'll do it, it'll go, it'll be big. Uh, and it was basically a very simple plan. You know, I had two territories with two bookers. Uh, basically, it'd be Rob in one and me in the other. And uh, Bob Armstrong would be hanging out with me uh, because he had never done any booking, but he was such a sharp mind for wrestling. He was going to be the third booker. Uh, that was kind of the plan. So, uh, so bookers, what we, we sit down and talked and said, uh, so what we'll do is bookers are going to stay in one territory for an entire year. Uh, and they're going to have their own crew. Each booker has his own crew. And uh, one Rob, is, for instance, is in the north during this time frame, and uh, I'm down south. Uh, I've got my wrestlers. He has his. And then after a year, we're going to switch territories. Uh, and that would eliminate the same booker from being in the territory too long. And that's what happened to a lot of territories were having problems. The booker would be there too long. Then the talent's there too long. And uh, his talent becomes stale. And uh, then the business starts to fall off. So we decided that once a year, we switched. No matter how good business is, we switched territories. And, uh, and it made it much easier as a booker to keep the momentum up rather than when you lost that momentum, it was hard to get those towns back up again. So uh, this way, you didn't lose momentum. You weren't there long enough to lose momentum. Uh, 
So, uh, and, and normally when bookers moved, they went either north or south, uh, which, you, you know, uh, when we were working this and that and their crew was going to go with them. So that change in talent would help uh, both the territories. It provided the fans with fresh faces. And then there was this constant return of some of the old fan favorites that had been there from the year before. So obviously there was going to be a flow of new talent when it was needed, but basically we're going to acclimate fans to seeing this group one year, the next year, you're going to see somebody else. Then the following year, that group that you really liked comes back again. So it would allow us to keep many of our own stars because they could be in the same two territories for their entire careers. Uh, and uh, both of these territories had shorter trips than most of the territories around the country at that time. And uh, we payoffs were good because business was always good and steady. And, uh, and if one of the territories experienced a slump in attendance, then it would have been pretty easy for us to bolster that bolster their slump by just sending in a few talent, a few, few of the top guys from the other territory. So uh, then there was a long range plan. Besides this first plan to have two territories, two bookers switch out every other year, uh, Booker takes his crew with him. There was a long range plan. This one had a possibility of super shows that I, I called them back in the day when we were discussing this uh, with pay-per-view events. Uh, where the territories got together and competed against each other, put their champions against the other territories' champions, do it maybe twice a year in major cities and uh, do pay-per-views across the country. The entire process had begun in March of 1978. That's when the Southern Territory, Southeastern Gulf Coast, opened its doors. And uh, Bob and I were booking there. Uh, the plan was in process. Rob was booking the Southeastern Knoxville crew. Uh, most of those guys had been with him for years there in 1978. He'd been booking for a couple of years, me and him both. And uh, so guys like the Stomper, Ronnie Garvin, Don Carson, and others, uh, you know, like that, uh, a good talent was kind of his, his group. So then Southeastern Gulf Coast uh, had experienced tremendous growth, which didn't happen. Uh, and it, the growth we got in southeastern Gulf Coast was far beyond the pace that it took us to get Knoxville started uh, the first couple of years. And I thought we were all happy, man, with where we were in September 1978, that there was something going on. Uh, but, but behind all of this, there was a little something stuff going on that I wasn't aware of. I mentioned this a couple of times. Uh, it, it was happening to the other two territories in the state of Tennessee at that time. They were experiencing it already. And the business was down in both the Nashville and the Memphis territories in the fall of 1978. Uh, I had to think, uh, you know, I think it had a lot to do with the economy. And if you think back, man, uh, those those of us that were old enough uh, to be a part of that uh, that uh, that time frame, the country was in a recession, man, and and, and we were experiencing the same things we got now: inflation, big time. Wow, uh, loans were twenty percent. <laughs> you know, I mean, you couldn't get. It was just a really tough time. Mm. So the Nashville office mm. of the two between Nashville and Memphis was in the biggest trouble. 
they'd been using the same top wrestlers for years, and they were all totally burned out. All the wrestlers, the Jackie Fargos and the, the Tojo Yamamoto's and uh, some of these guys that had just been working for Nick Goulas for many, many years. And to make matters worse, the owner, Nick Goulas, about 1978, he decided to push his son as the champion in his territory. Uh, his son's name was George. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and in most people's opinion, his son was one of the worst wrestlers in history. Wow. It was the kiss of death for Nick. It started happening in 1978 uh, to Nick Goulas. And uh, within two years, he's going to sell Birmingham and northern Alabama to us, the southeastern territory down there in, in Pensacola. And uh, and he's going to be out of business. He's basically going to close down his operation. Uh, then it was the Memphis Territory of which my father owned part of it uh, and Jerry Jarrett owned part of it. And, and uh, they'd been riding high for several years and they began to fall off and they too had same problems, uh, uh, a little bit different. They had talent problems. Uh, They had a a booker, their booker had been there too long. He'd done the same angles, which bookers tend to do after a period of time. They don't, they, they're not creative enough to come up with something new. And, and people go, wow, I think I saw that happen a year ago. You know, and uh, so that was always a horrible deal. So, you know, the Memphis was experiencing a bad booker that had been there too long. And uh, he kind of lost the feel for his fans uh, about what they would buy and what they wouldn't. And uh, so sadly, during all this, I was not aware that the Memphis Territory was looking for a booker that could also provide them with some new talent. So so in my own southeastern Knoxville, which had, which had been on fire for two years, there was beginning to be another little problem. You know, I was totally committed to the Gulf Coast, and, and I wasn't there to see what was happening in Knoxville. I had spent... All my time, practically, from March when it started uh, up until uh, uh, September, October, uh, predominantly in the South. I didn't know what was going on uh, in Knoxville. And suddenly my brother came to me kind of out of the clear blue, and and he wanted to come into the Southeastern and basically to, to do the plan, but to trade the territories after only six months rather than the year, way ahead of the agreed upon time that we had talked about when we, when we bought Southeastern down there, uh, bought, uh, bought out the Fields Brothers and Gulf Coast. So, so, and then I got to thinking if I, if I sent Robert to book Southeastern Gulf Coast, then I'd have to come back to Knoxville or I'd have to hire another booker for there. Uh, and in 1978, it, it, 1978 had been the busiest year for me in, in, in all my wrestling history since I started in the business. And when I think back upon it, I had to work both territories. I was working big shows in Knoxville. I was working uh, shows in the South. I was back and forth. And uh, and I, it wore me out. 1978 wore me down. And then I began to make mistakes that... Uh, that were going to cost me dearly in 1979. Uh, so I don't want to pull Bob Armstrong out of the Gulf Coast and send him to Knoxville as the booker because he's the strongest baby face in the Gulf Coast. And it wasn't the end of the year. 
We were only six months in and business was great. It was doing good. So I began to think about uh, a restaurant in Knoxville crew that might have the ability to do some booking there mm-hmm. uh, with my oversight. I mm-hmm. can kind of go back to Knoxville, spend more time there, not have to run it, have somebody else there that actually I just tell him what to do and he gets it done. Mm-hmm. There was only one guy out there that I had heard that it had any booking experience. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and that's just where I made a critical mistake. And I didn't dig, dig deep enough to find out just what kind of experience this person had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, but uh, that's where the Bob Roop saga began. Wow. Okay, so I'm sure there's a. Well, you ain't even you you've not even scratched anything on that. So really fascinating stuff, Ron. So I'm sorry for the interruption, but I'm sure that we're going to be talking about a lot about this in the future. So let's do the learning tree question today. Or, or you can continue on. What, what do you, what do you want to do? Yeah, no, let's do the the learning tree. Yeah, okay. You know, because, like you say, this 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 discussion is going to go for a while. Uh, yeah. You know, there's yeah. a whole lot involved in what yeah. happened in 1979. So, uh, so yeah, let's let's jump in and let's let's do another another learning tree. Obviously, right. the story of 79 Knoxville Wrestling War is just beginning, man. And, and I got to mm. go. I could go 10 stud casts. That's exactly right what I was thinking. Yeah. One subject, you know, yeah. but uh, it, it might make more sense uh, to have a little more, a little less information uh, pushed out uh, mm. at one time and uh, string it over a longer period of time. And so let's take that learning tree question. All right, let's do that. And this is a really good one. It has to do with what we're talking about in this studcast, as a matter of fact. Bernard Dunwoody asked, I saw you on your streaming channel where you wrestled as many as 12 former NWA world champions going back as far as the very first NWA world champion, Lou Thez. How do you feel Harley Race ranked among those 12? I love that question. Wow, it's wow, a great question. Yeah, and especially we got Harley Race coming. Uh, wow, it's a super question. Uh, and uh, Mr. Dunwoody, now I hope I, hope I pronounced that properly. Uh, it's a really great question, and thanks, thanks for sending it. Uh, uh, yes, uh, you know, I was lucky to be able to wrestle. Yeah, Dave, twelve of the all-time greats that that one time or another uh, wore that NWA belt. And obviously, were uh, they were not all champions when I wrestled them, you know. But all twelve of them were good enough to win the belt, and uh, that said a lot for each one of them. Uh, you didn't get that far if you weren't really one of the best. And that belt and the organization that established uh, that belt, the National Wrestling Alliance, was the greatest wrestling organization in the history of the sport, undoubtedly, unquestionably. And, uh, and I'm proud to be the grandson of Roy Welch, one of the 1948 NWA founders. Uh, he was there when they pieced it all together. And there was no company, uh, no territory, no wrestling organization ever that came anywhere close to having so many talented world champions as the mm. National Wrestling Alliance. Mm. So I was lucky to get to wrestle for the first uh, I was, let's just start back with the very beginning of the guys that I wrestled. I was 
really, really honored, not just lucky, but honored to wrestle the first and the second NWA world champions, both of them, Luthez and Pat O'Connor. Yeah. I've been able to wrestle both those guys. I wrestled Luthez five times. Wow. Pat O'Connor twice. And uh, both of which, you know, uh, uh, I had, and and I won, I won matches with them, most of the matches with them. And, uh, but, uh, you know, they'd, Obviously, they had won and lost the belt many years before I stepped in the ring. With them. Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't imagine how good they were. Wow, you know when they were in their prime. So then, and then uh, the anonymous going to kind of cover some of these champions in a way. Uh, I, I think the great thing about the NWA champions is the sheer diversity between all of them. You know, uh, no two of them were exactly alike. Not, not even the two brothers, Dory Funk Jr. and Terry. Uh, and in fact, of the of all of them, those two may have had the most completely different styles of any of them. You know, Jr. was that wrestler, that that the forearm guy, and Terry mm-hmm. was the maniac. Mm-hmm. You never knew what he was going to do. <laughs> you know. Uh, so, and then, and then from uh, then, I think back about one of the greatest amateurs of all time, guy we talked about in this episode, Jack Briscoe. Uh, you know, uh, wow, what a talent he was. And then uh, I wrestled that big old roughneck Canadian, Gene Koninsky, man, who was just about as far away from using any amateur moves as you could get. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you were, you were going to brawl with Koninsky and you were going to have to wrestle with Jack Briscoe. Uh, all these different styles. So, uh, and then you had these four short-term holders of the belt. I call them short-term holders, that they only had the belt for uh, – I think Ronnie Garvin and one of these had it for two months, and uh, and all of the rest of them was a lot less. That. Some of them were only for a week. Uh, that's Giant Baba in Japan, wrestled him in Japan. Uh, the inimitable Dusty Rhodes. Wow. Dusty Rhodes. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't remember Dusty. <laughs> I reckon Dusty a whole lot of times, yeah. 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 Uh, long yeah. before he won the time. You know, so yeah. Dusty was one of them. Uh, uh, my good buddy, Tommy Rich. Great guy. Wow, what a great guy. And then there's the old Fist of Stones, Roddy Garvin, man. Uh, uh, and they were all uh, maybe a little uh, lesser known, but every one of those four guys were worthy, man. They were worthy of a title run. Uh, <laughs> then you get down to Ric Flair, and uh, he's the one I wrestled the most. Hmm. I wrestled Ric, uh, wow. <laughs> I, some, I, I have this whole chart of my matches from my whole career, and I find out, the, I look at back, and, and then I see sometimes people run these things on the social media, uh, these cards. And there's me and Ric Flair, and I go, wait a minute, I don't remember that match in that town. So, you know, no telling how many times I wrestled Ric Flair. And uh, obviously he had real star power, and, uh, and he had the glitz to go along with it. Uh, hmm. But in my estimation, you know, he, the gentleman asked about Harley. Where does Harley stand in all this? Yeah. In my estimation, the one that had – the aura of invincibility to him, man, was Harley Race. Uh, it was just, to, you, you could see it in his face. You could, uh, uh, there was something about him that just said, uh, you, you ain't going to beat me, you know. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he wasn't 
he wasn't the greatest wrestler of them all. Uh, and he certainly wasn't the most flamboyant of them all. Uh, he wasn't even the greatest talker of them all. Hmm. But, uh, but to me, he had it all. And, and that's, that's uh, Mr. Dunwoody. Uh, that's what I think about Harley Race. Wow. All right. You have done it again, Stud. There's another great one with so much real wrestling history in it. I love hearing you talk about Harley Race. That is awesome. All right. And one of the most imitated as kids, one of the most imitated wrestlers ever, the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. Man, everybody wanted to do Dusty Rhodes as a kid. I tell you what. This has been an awesome stud cast. Folks on Facebook, the Ron Fuller Welch Facebook page is full of friends. No more can be added to that page to become friends with Ron. You can go to his Ron Fuller of the Tennessee Stud Facebook page. You can like him, follow him there, and automatically become friends with a legend. On Twitter, follow him at Ron Fuller Welch. Ron Fuller Welch on Twitter. The website, it's famous, tnstud.com. tnstud.com, the website of Ron Fuller Welch, has everything. It's loaded. Every studcast ever done. 43 three-hour super studcaster there. Only $2.99 each some of those are absolutely legendary. Shop the stud store for all kinds of souvenirs, personally autographed photos and items, T-shirts, and the thrilling lion novel called Brutus. Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. It's a great place to find your studcast every week, as well as up-to-date info on Ron's fantastic streaming channel at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. The streaming channel, by the way, now has 322 videos on it. Brutus now has eight great chapters of Ron's own audio version of Brutus with him doing four characters. There are now 74 Southeastern TV shows there. Every one, every one from 1978 through 1982. And now in the original order of production, 23 continental TV shows. 23 USA TV shows, 41 stud stories, five stars of the sport, four superstars of the past, and three two-hour documentaries. And believe it or not, it's still only, only the beginning. Subscribe now at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year. It is the best old-school streaming site on the planet. Don't miss this special offer, by the way. Right now, for a limited time, get a free one-week trial on ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. You got to check it out, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Wow, that's a lot, stud. How do you keep up with it all? And so, here's the next question. Where do we ride next week? It's finally here, man. Uh, and like you said back a little bit earlier in the show, you know, a Harley race is coming to town. Man. And he's coming to the next studcast. Uh, there's going to be four record, a record for Southeastern at this point, four matches in five days with the world champion in two territories. And he's going to get Garvin in the Southeastern uh, Knoxville territory. And he's going to get, the bullet, Bob Armstrong in the southeastern Gulf Coast. And uh, we will discuss, obviously, the TVs from both of those territories uh, that promote the shows. 
We'll give the fans the results of the matches, and we'll talk about the record attendances that are going to fall by the wayside during the week of uh, beginning February, I mean, uh, September 22nd, 1978, and ending uh, seven days later. So, uh, you know, we and then we're going to continue to ride into that tragic 1979 wrestling war. We're going to do a little bit of it uh, every week uh, when we can and answer, hopefully, another answer, another learning tree question as well. And I don't want to thank everybody, man, as always, for your support. Uh, wow, what you do uh, and that and how you how you hang in there and how many people are riding a uh, boy in Studcast now. It's pretty amazing. And uh, we are riding into a new territory uh, each week now, basically. And, uh, <laughs> and it's a great time to tell your friends and neighbors about us. And please take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.